This is Israel Rebound, a podcast joining listeners around the world to Israel, exploring the ties that bind us through culture, identity, and current events. I'm Alan Potash in California, and I'm joined with my co-host and friend, Liz Velstrin in Jerusalem. Liz, how are you? Hi, Alan. Doing very well. How are you? I'm good. So much for us to talk about today. Uh, We're two weeks into the new government, and there are lots of stories in the media about the pros and cons of what policies are being laid out. You know, it was kind of a challenge for Prime Minister Netanyahu to form his coalition, uh, but he was able to secure 64 Knesset members to join Mm -hmm. him on his uh his efforts there are quite a few policies that have been talked about lately and i wonder if you're comfortable um updating or just sharing your insights on several of them um oh, we want to just jump in or um um yeah i mean i think the what's been making the biggest headlines are the um the judicial reforms, right, which is sort of the overarching title for um, a series of changes that um, that the new government is interested in doing, and they um, are p- packaging them together in, you know, a plan that they are going to uh, release over the next few weeks. Um, it's not clear exactly in what form the plan exists. The um, the there was a meeting of the um, the judicial reform committee, and they did a lot of just sort of saying they want to hear all voices, and they you know, want to hear everyone's opinions. And they kept talking about that they have this plan, but they didn't share a lot of details about what exactly this plan was going to be. It was a lot of just arguing whether the plan should or should not happen. But there are some things that we do know um, are in this plan or likely to be in this plan. And uh, they're relatively controversial. Right. There are a lot of opinions about whether these kind of changes are good or not. Right. The um, the overarching goal is to reduce the power of the courts in Israel, the high court in particular, and to increase the power of the Knesset with the argument of those that are in favor of this change being that this will create more balance. And those who are opposed to it saying it's already balanced, this will unbalance it. Um, so I'm that's in, kind I'm of in, where we are. Yeah. I'm, in, I'm intrigued by the development of all of this. And it kind of goes back to one of our earlier conversations about the speaker of the Knesset transition. So there was a temporary uh, speaker, and that was Yeriv uh, Levin. Mm-hmm. Now he's the minister of justice. So has this kind of been his strategic move all along to address the judicial reform? Um, Or is this in partnership with Netanyahu and other people? So um, uh, Minister Yariv Lavin is still very much involved. He actually came out with the original plan 
I am uh, even before the election in uh, in the weeks leading up to the November one election. And now his work or ideas are being carried forward by the uh, by the not the Minister of Justice, but by the chair of this uh, Constitution and Justice Committee. Um, and, uh, but, but certainly, um, Yoliv Levine and other members of Knesset are, are very much involved. The, um, you know, the basic things that we know about this plan are, um, that it has the goal of, uh, a few things. One, I am is that they want to put in something called an override clause. What does the override clause do? It means that if the high court finds legislation that is passed by the Knesset to they veto it, the Knesset can then overturn that high court decision with a simple majority. So that so, sounds like a that sounds like a pretty radical position for the Knesset to overturn the judiciary or the Supreme Court. I yeah, I mean, yes, if you think that part of the role of the high court is to check the power of the Knesset to then say no, the ultimate they can check them but then they can be unchecked. I mean, it yeah, it's problematic. Um, the, the plan also includes canceling the, uh, doing away with the crime of breach of trust. If the crime breach of trust sounds familiar, it's because that is what Netanyahu is currently charged with. Um, so. So as a, as a skeptic, is this a change of the legal structure in order to protect um, the prime minister? Is that, am I reading too much into it? I think it would be hard not to see that sort of connect the dots. I mean, it seems, I think it seems pretty reasonable. And speaking of reasonable, another um change that is part of this whole uh, judicial review process is to remove the um, reasonableness clause. And now this is the clause that allows the courts um, to intervene in uh, uh, things that are beyond what is a reasonable um, what it is reasonable and responsible for an authority to engage in, meaning that the court can, of their own choosing, step in if they feel that some other authority has exceeded the bounds of what is reasonable. And the idea is to strike down that clause so that we will not have a way for the courts, again, to check the authority of people or committees that may be overstepping what is reasonably within their purview. So let me ask you a question. I think that what all these things that you're posing from the judicial 
perform a judicial review. Is this because there isn't a constitution in Israel that designates exactly what each role of government should play? Maybe that's too hypothetical. So we question. we we don't have something. Well, we we don't necessarily have something called a constitution, but instead we have what Israel calls basic laws. Right. We have these set of laws that were put in place and are considered, um, uh, uh, well, until quite recently, they were considered untouchable. Right. They're called basic laws because they're basic. They're something that Israel considers integral to our identity as a lawful nation and not something that should be changed. Um, but there are starting to be precedents for. Uh, changing them, right? Part the basic law was changed when um, Arabic was removed as one of Israel's official languages. This was, you know, in the previous, previous, previous government. Um, and um, basic laws are the kind of laws that. Um, the the courts have always, you know, considered very sacred and protected, right? The same way in the states, we think of the courts as protecting the Constitution and upholding the Constitution. Um, but now, uh, another one of the changes is that if the courts want to uh, intervene regarding a basic law, they have to for, first have a, a special majority. Um, so it's, again, you know, tying the hands of the court as to when they can get involved with, you know, with the basic law. So, so let, me, let me kind of close out this conversation in a, in a way I'm not sure you can answer, but what is the time frame for this to be instituted? I am. Um, it, it's not. It's not really clear yet, because I think it's hard to know how much of the. Um, for example, when they met this week, and the meeting was a lot of saying, you know, we want to go slow. We want to take everybody's uh, thoughts into consideration. We want to hear all of the ideas, and only then make a recommendation. It's hard to know how much that is, in fact, true or an attempt to build consensus by lead letting people feel heard. But really, the plan already exists. Um, and if it's the latter, you know, it could move more quickly. If they really decide to hear out all of the experts, um, then it will take longer. Now, that would be a good thing, I think, to hear all of the experts, right? That's why we have experts. Um, but, the, I mean, just more discussions are supposed to happen next week. Um, but it's not clear how quickly anything concrete will happen. So so thank, thank you for breaking all that down. But it kind of looks like, you know, when the new government started a couple weeks ago, they threw a lot of stuff out into the public sphere as ideas, and now it's their opportunity to make them happen or not make them happen, but they've generated quite a bit of interest and some would say hysteria over certain policies that they have in place, but really it's a matter of time to really see how things evolve. Um, so I'm not gonna throw the 
as they say, the baby out with the bathwater, but there are positive things that could take place and negative things that could take place with this new government. Yes, look, I mean, I think it would be um, unreasonable to paint any democratically elected government as all good or all bad, right? It was, this is a government that was elected in some shape or another because of our funky uh, parliamentary system, but was elected by a majority of the Israeli voting public. Um, And they will govern in a way that pleases some sections of the public and is less, you know, in line with the views of others. But um, I think even, I I think it is, you know, I don't think it's helpful and I also don't think it's accurate to try and paint it as entirely black and white, right? This government, regardless of what any of us think about a lot of their views um, will also make some changes that will be good, I imagine. We'll see. Well, I, I like the optimistic view that you have. And I think that time will tell for everything that we have to see how this government unfolds. And we saw that with the last government, the last coalition that was always on rocky ground because it only had a one seat majority. This one has a four-seat majority, and it looks as though most of the people on that one side of the majority are pretty steadfast in their position. So we'll just kind of see how the 32 members of the Knesset that belong to Likud versus the 32 members of the Knesset that belong to the more of the religious and ultra-religious and Zionist religious parties um, argue over certain things. Mm-hmm. Um, I- I'm going to shift um, a little bit, if you're okay with shifting a little bit. Sure. So last week in our podcast, we talked about the status of of Israel in a ranking by the uh, U.S. News and World Report that you and I were puzzled by the ranking. Yeah, Israel didn't do too well. No, 37th out of 85. Um, And so I was with somebody yesterday who shared with me that Israel was a superstar at the consumer electronics show in Las Vegas last week, and that they walked away with some of the prizes for innovation. Um, so there's a contradiction in some of the um, some of the pieces of the study that we re- reviewed last week, where Israel didn't fare so well in the entrepreneurial spirit or in the innovation side. So I, I just want to revisit that and and celebrate the fact that you know at, at the Las Vegas show, Israel demonstrated their ability to be entrepreneurial and innovative and surprised yeah. that it doesn't kind of meet the world opinion. <laughs> yeah, I think it's uh, worth celebrating. And, you know, you and I had questioned at the time something about that U.S. Uh, Roland News report didn't uh, didn't feel like it was telling the whole story. And I would say just, you know, from my personal and anecdotal experience, you know, Israel, yes, being a place that does very well with entrepreneurism and innovation, to me, sounds more likely to be the the real story. Um, and I'll share just a little glimpse of innovation that I've had in recent weeks. So I have had the 
pleasure, responsibility, burden of uh, visiting. Let's say responsibility. Let's say responsibility, <laughs> not burden. We'll go with the neutral term. I am uh, visiting quite a few uh, religious girls middle schools in Jerusalem in the past several weeks as a the process of uh, choosing a middle school for for our daughter for next year, and. It is amazing how much emphasis really all of the schools place on innovation and on um, uh, entrepreneurialism. And they have all of these hackathons. They're very concerned about social issues and having girls, even from this young age, right? These are middle schools and that go on. They're like six-year schools, middle school, high schools combined. Um, and there are many, many programs to teach people to think in these terms. And at one of the schools, there were two girls, eighth graders, who got up to speak to a room full of visiting parents about the app that they have invented, which they have already presented in many forums, including to the mayor of Jerusalem, and which they have won some competitions for and seed money. And their app is designed to identify when the user sends a message or tries to send a message that has any words that the app identifies as bullying or shaming or or hurtful. And then it automatically says, are you sure you want to send this message? Words can kill and freezes the phone for two minutes or something before it will allow you to say, yes, I do want to send this message or, okay, I've changed my mind. I'm going to rewrite this one. And I think that's amazing. So that goes to the point that you and I both agree that Israel's as the startup nation, uh, Mm -hmm. it kind of went through a little drought there for a while, but it's back being a, a leader in innovation and technology that it starts at a very early age in Israel and the opportunity to find an audience to support your idea. That's what entrepreneurial spirit is all about. So we have to, now we have to write a, a letter to the editor of U.S. News and World Report telling them they were wrong. Yeah, something is but, off in your research uh, methods. So how how as a parent do you view the the curriculum of a school when you're thinking about sending your daughter to a school for the next, you know, six years or so. How many? Four years? Five years? How many more years of school? Yeah, six years, right? It's like seventh through twelfth grade. Right. I am. What criteria do you use to determine whether or not the school meets your your needs and your criteria? The real criteria. (laughs) (laughs) The real criteria. Real criteria are a combination of a location. Um, who else is going there? Did the teachers seem like they're nice? Um, does the school have what I would say is in a, an open and pluralistic understanding of Judaism? Now, we're looking only at religious schools, right? So within that spectrum, one, I try and find the ones that seem to to us to most speak to our values. Um, the uh, what else? 
I mean, some people are very concerned about whether the schools have a cafeteria or not. I know that's high on a lot of people's list. I am. Um, but the truth is that we're very lucky in Jerusalem, right? All of the schools are very good. They all um, follow the core curriculum that's dictated by the Ministry of Education. And then on top of that, have their own unique programs of what they emphasize. Some that's more the arts, some it's more science, some it's more, you know, humanities. Um, and, you know, one can't study everything, but those are all great things to learn about. So you uh, you, and, refer- yeah. you reference this as a um, religious school, mm-hmm. uh, but then you use the phrase you're looking for pluralistic um, values. I mean, is there a contradiction there? I am. I I don't think there's a contradiction. I mean, I, you know, I would like to think that I I would like to send my children to schools where even though the school is religious and is teaching religious values and uh, religious skills and knowledge, that there's no question that it wouldn't be okay for a student to ask. Right. Especially when you're talking about young people and teenagers, I think it's, you know, to me, it's important that it be okay to ask questions or to express doubts. Um, And, you know, not every school would say that that's something that they embrace. So So, I look for the ones that do. (laughs) Well, good luck with that responsibility as a parent and not not a burden. I want to clarify a couple of things. Um, You reference this as a religious school, but it's a public school. It's paid for by your taxes. You don't pay extra for the school? Uh, Correct. So in Israel, uh, really all of the schools are public schools. And amazingly enough, Israel runs four separate and distinct public school systems. They run the secular schools, they run the religious schools, they run the ultra-religious schools, and they run the Arab schools. And these are four separate school systems that um, are, for better or worse, kept quite separate. For example, I mean, each has different requirements of what has to be part of their core curriculum and what doesn't. They have different budgets, et cetera, et cetera. But for example, you know, when we want to register a gila for school and we have to fill out on the form of the municipality our choices, you have to first choose a stream of education. So you have to first decide, are you looking at religious schools or secular schools? And then you can only pick from that list. You can't do a mix match, right? If your top choice is a religious school, but there's some secular school that for whatever reason or what they specialize in, that would be your second choice. No, you can't do that. Um, so the so it's an interesting system. But yes, these are all public schools. They are paid for by tax dollars. Um, almost every one of them does have additional fees that parents pay, but it's certainly not like a full tuition. It's more of a, you know, supplement parent fee. Yeah. A parent fee. It's called bake sales. <laughs> I know they also have bake sales. <laughs> uh, Liz, thank you for that um, peek into 
middle school selection and and how that works for the city of Jerusalem. Any other things you want to share before we sign off today? I am. I think we are good for today. Yeah, everybody should stay warm. It's yeah, we had a little rainstorm yesterday, but for the most part it's a little warm. It's, you know, comfortable weather here in in the desert. Huh. Mm, sounds nice. <laughs> well, thank you all for listening. This has been Israel Rebound, a podcast bringing ideas in culture from Israel to uh, the rest of the world. Thank you all for listening. Thanks, everyone.